0: hello and welcome to the sensibly speaking podcast this is chris shelton coming at you for what is hopefully another hour of podcasting greatness here on youtube with video as well as on stitcher google play iHeartRadio, and a thousand other platforms that have picked up this podcast and uh you can hear it with audio there this week i welcome back and uh, Jen, again, forgive me if I if I ho- if I butcher this. Jen Kiaba.
1: Yeah, and you got yes. it right the first uh, time too. Gosh. Both times, so two for two. Congratulations! Uh, yes,
0: <laughs> doing something right today. Uh. Uh, <laughs> we have to take the little wins where we can get them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely, and thanks for coming on. I, um, I, you are progressing through the same program I have. I have been progressing through the Psychology of Coercive Control program over at the University of Salford, and uh, you, of course, come from a um, cult background like I do. You were raised in the Moonies, the Unification Church, and we got to talk about that in our last show. If you guys have not seen that, I highly recommend you hit pause. And go check that out because Jen was awesome in that interview and we had a lot of fun things to talk about and we hope to continue that conversation today. We do. Yes. So I thought you had mentioned something that I thought was a great place to start from because uh, as cult kitties and as, as cult survivors, second gen, you know, cult survivors, we are often plied with questions that are, you know, we roll our eyes. We really do. We, we just go, Wow. Okay, sure, I, I can see how that's a question somebody could have. I see how that could be a, you know, a, 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 a brush off of our experience with you have to be an idiot to join a cult. I, you know, to this day, I get these comments on my channel. And here's another one that we get, because we're not gonna talk about the stupidity of things today. We're gonna talk about this other thing, which is why didn't you just walk away?
1: Which the subtext is also in, I guess, the category of the stupidity of things, right? Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, in the general area of that. And yeah. and like I said, we, we roll our eyes at this only because, you know, the lived experience of it teaches you things. And, and, w- and when we come out of these situations, we escape from them and we go public, we start talking about this stuff. We, I, I mean, you know, Jen, I, lots and lots of other people have... Have have gone out of our way to try to understand our own experience and try to try to contextualize it, try to make it make sense, try to figure out what happened, why it happened, how do we prevent that from happening again in the future, and 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 so we want to address and help people understand the experience. Um, so so I you know so there's not too much uh, angst here, but but a little bit because some of these questions are just kind (laughs) of assume that we're idiots, right? That we're just a bunch of morons who were in a cult and, and, and why didn't we just walk away? Why couldn't we see it? Wasn't it obvious? What, what are your reactions when you, when you hear this stuff?
1: Well, the question is a judgment in and of itself, right? If you remove the word just, which there's like a whole, uh, World of assumption in the word just. If you remove the word just, why didn't you leave? We did leave, right? And so then you have to sort of dive into this question and understand what do people think, what do they believe about your experience um, or other survivors of coercive control, not just in the cultic situation. Um, What are their assumptions about the world that you were living in when they say just? Because it assumes it's a very simple thing, right? That's right. Um, And I, I think that that reveals a lot about what people don't know and what people don't understand um <laughs> it it's my least favorite question
2: um yeah. <laughs>
1: because it's it it is so judgmental um and, and so, I mean, we can dive into the, the data around it. We can dive into what various clinical researchers have come up with, but I think that the most effective thing for you and me is, is to talk about the lived experience, right? So I was born and raised in a high control group. Many people look at the Moonies as a primary example of a cult, and in fact, uh, many cult researchers based their understanding of brainwashing or mind control in cultic situations based on the Mooney model, right? So this is incredibly intense indoctrination. And when you have a whole first gen that uh, was converted through intense indoctrination that was directly imported from um, North Korean prison camps and from China, Yep. They are perpetuating that onto their children. You know, the first time I was uh, put into an indoctrination camp, I was eight years old, but I was being indoctrinated from the time that I was born. I was probably indoctrinated in utero. Um, and so it it is something that forms not only your identity and your worldview and your family, but the entire way that you think. And so... All of your beliefs about yourself, all of your beliefs about humanity, your family, people outside of the group—those um, are those are really hard things to break. When we look at coercive control from a domestic violence sphere, I think the statistics are somewhere along the lines of like it takes a survivor between seven and thirteen times to leave, mm. because there is so much framework for them to break down. Plus there is the uh, the risk of heightened violence when they leave. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's helpful to look at cult survivors in a similar context because it's usually not a one-to-one ratio in these situations. It's not the perpetuator and the victim. It's a, a family culture or it's a group culture or there's different layers of it. Right. And And I think a lot of people think that we all lived on a compound. You lived on a compound. I lived on a compound. And all you had to do was pack a bag some night and bug out. Um, And even if that was the case, that's still a, a really, really hard thing to do. But for those of us that didn't grow up on a compound, I think the thing that's really helpful for people to understand is that The isolation still exists. There's still sort of this sense of the compound in your mind and in your worldview. You know, there's very much that us and them. So I was brought up to believe that everybody outside of the group was dangerous, was a representation of Satan, and that if I left, I would die. Like Satan would attack me and kill me. So the first time that I wanted to leave the church, I was 14 years old. And if there had been social services available for me, um, and I had been able to get a job and, um, be emancipated and survive, I probably would have done it. I would have lost everything, my family, my friends, again, my identity, um, my cultural group, but I lost that anyway. And so there were, there were many, many times in my story where I thought about leaving and I thought about the risks and you know it's it's not that at 14 i decided not to leave or at 19 i decided not to leave it's that um the cycles of indoctrination are very very intense it's like if you've ever been swimming in the ocean and you get knocked over by a wave and then you keep getting pulled under and knocked over and you have a really hard time standing up i think that's a perfect metaphor for what indoctrination is like for many of us because mm. We might be trying to get out, but it might be an intense struggle that takes us a really, really long time. And we can get pulled out to sea in that struggle and then have to fight our way back to shore. So that's a really, really long answer to why I hate that question. Because again, it, it assumes so much, and yet it, it doesn't acknowledge the depth of the struggle for a lot of people.
0: Exactly. Uh, that's, a great, that's a great way of putting it. I like that title analogy. I will say that I think that a general, you uh, know, in, in a much broader sense, um, I think that I, I've been thinking lately that it, wouldn't it be nice? I, I'll, just, I'll just say this. Wouldn't it be nice if we could approach situations we don't understand as learning opportunities rather than as judgments? You know, it's like a rather add an opportunity to judge a person or judge a situation that we really don't understand fully. Mm-hmm. If we could somehow see those as the learning opportunities they are. And I think people do. That's why they listen to the podcast. But I, I, I'm speaking to the broad general group of people who don't, who are very incurious, who make these judgments and sort of walk away. And they're really kind of, you know, losing an opportunity to learn something themselves, I think. And I, just, I, I, I thought I'd throw that out there.
1: Um, so in in the essays you and I have to write for yeah. school, one of the papers that I'm looking at is about uh, collective self-esteem and outgroup bias. <laughs> and so you know <laughs> what it kind of dives into is that it's super convenient for people to kind of do the ostrich head in the sand thing in terms of taking in that information because the more you ostracize an outgroup, the easier it is for you to feel good about the group that you're in. and I think that we see that in our politics today so i want to totally judge it and yet at the same time it seems to be like a very normal way that humans function so i have to get over that yeah. <laughs> just like <laughs> and not expect people to automatically be curious i think that it it does take a lot of growth to be curious about things that we don't understand that yep will fundamentally rewire our understanding of ourselves. That's, I think, the really hard part about asking these questions and then like really listening without judgment.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And of course, when we talk about these things, one thing I'd like to just sort of point out as the sort of elephant in the room or a very obvious thing about this is, you know, why didn't you just walk away? Well, uh, there are people who did. hmm you hear from some of them they, that did happen with some people. Some people can do that. And really, I think the question that is a lot more interesting is what does it take for somebody to walk away from a high mm-hmm. control committed activity like Scientology yeah. or the Moonies? That's a question that actually has answers that are fascinating answers. You know, what does it take? Well, for some people, it doesn't seem to take a lot, but you're not really in their head. You haven't seen the years of deconstruction or doubt or, or concern or whatever that's going on in their minds that leads them to that point. I have said, you know, me leaving Scientology was I I, I, I traced it back one day, really, really sort of thought, thought about it. And it was a 10-year process. You know, people are like, well, what was this? What, what, what was your breaking point? What was the nail in the coffin? How did how'd you walk away? What was what that? No, it was, what, it was your light bulb moment. And it was more like, well, actually, there's a whole series of them. It's more like you've got, it's more like those dimmable bulbs mm-hmm. it's sort of you you click it on and it slowly gets brighter and brighter over time until you can't ignore the brightness of it anymore and that's when you sort of start going wait a second
2: mm-hmm.
0: and for some people that light never shines they never turn it on or they never get it bright enough to see what's going on you could say that's an interesting analogy but it's it, i think it's kind of like that what do, what do you think
1: I mean, I think that there's so many variations of what you're talking about. My experience is very similar to yours. Like I said, the first time that I thought about leaving, I was 14. Um, But I even remember recognizing things being like really wrong as young as eight and 12. Mm -hmm. Um, And just being like, what the F is happening here? Like I, I remember at 12 years old saying to my mom, like, first-gen are weird. They, They seem kind of crazy, you know, and she had like a perfect explanation for it. Um, so that's definitely my experience too. I think that there's also people who, um, they get ostracized, they get shunned, they get pushed out. There are, maybe there are people who have like a single breaking point and that's it. I don't really know anybody personally. Um, And then it's really interesting um, from the perspective of mostly first gen, what I've seen are there are people who get disenchanted with the group, but not with the leader. Mm. You know, I'm in a, a Facebook group for ex-moonies and it's a, a mix of first gen and second gen and it's fascinating to me to see that there are people still holding on somebody posted the other day I didn't join a cult you know it became a cult and I'm like oh honey
2: actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh
1: you did um- <laughs> But and and I you know I, I really struggle with the word joined too because I, I believe that that's actually too strong of a word. I think that people were indoctrinated and coerced into joining something that they believed was really good and then you know the curtains started to fall away and exactly. and then the full cult, Uh, spectrum was revealed so in that regard like maybe that person was right they joined you know the community collective or whatever of berkeley there's a specific front group that i'm totally messing up but a lot of people joined through this front group and they thought it was going to be you know like a bunch of hipsters raising crops and building schools and like really cool groovy stuff in the 60s and 70s and it definitely wasn't but that's what they thought that they joined right So again, that, that first gen may be more right than, than I'm giving them credit for. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that in general, it, I tend to subscribe to, again, like your framework of there's, there's not a single light bulb moment. Um, I think for some of us, it's, there's that inkling that starts off that takes years to start to tear down the walls of our indoctrination and also to build up the bravery to say, I'm, I'm going to give up all of the framework of my life, my identity, my finances, friends, family, and step out into this thing that I was told was uh, a dangerous, horrible, evil wilderness.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: One second gen said to me one time, maybe they said it on a podcast and not to me, but in my brain it's to me. <laughs>
2: um,
1: you have to be willing to die, you have to be willing to go to hell in order to leave, because in a sense, that's what you're doing. Mm. And um so that means that for some of us it does have to get that bad.
0: Exactly. And there's a there's a couple of things you've you've said without saying directly here, which I want to point up, which is that, um, The view, the indoctrination, you could say, the learning that you get, especially second gen, but over time as a first gen too, as you get indoctrinated, is the us versus them, the othering, the the, the fact that those people out there who are not us Mm -hmm. are not just not us. It's not just they're them and we're us. It's they're dangerous to you. Yeah. They will hurt you. They will mm-hmm. damage you. They are destructive. They are harmful. They mean to, they mean to hurt you. Yes. And that, and that presents a picture where, oh, this is my safe haven. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's the enemy. Those are the bad guys. Those are the outside world. Is the, I can't trust those people. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. They don't, that's that, the other thing. So. So it's not an even Steven thing where you're like, oh, well, I'm in this group and I'm getting hit or I'm getting a beat on or I'm getting locked in the basement or this or that or the other thing. And you still think for a very long time, as bad as that experience is,
2: mm-hmm.
0: well, it would be worse if I left.
1: There's there's two things that you've made me think of. One is under Lifton's eight criteria for thought reform. That is dispensing of existence, right? These are the people who basically deserve to live in the group and, and then there's everybody else. And in, um, in the way that my mother raised me, she raised me to believe that people who didn't go through Reverend Moon's blessing ceremony, which was the the marriage, the mass marriage, they were basically soulless beings. And she would quote the Bible and say that the sons of God began to marry the sons of man. And she's like, well, who were the sons of God? That was Adam and Eve. Right. And they were the ones that God blessed with souls and everybody else out there. There had to have been other people, right? Because otherwise you would have just had this like inbred line of, of humanoids but everybody else was like a soulless humanoid and so it's only by be, being re onto god's lineage which is mooney language that like people regain souls so everybody else out there is just like a soulless zombie who will like suck your brain i don't know there we go <laughs> the second thing is that um, you reminded me of alexandra stein's work on attachment theory mm-hmm. so in her book terror terror love and brainwashing uh, she talks about how in cults and other high demand groups the cult is the only safe place but they're also the place that's causing the terror and so um You know, this happens for children, but it also happens for adults that when a person is getting abused, the only safe haven is the cult because they've set it up that way. They've set you up to believe that. And so it creates this cycle. It's very similar to the cycle of violence in domestic violence, um, where the only safe person to turn to is the perpetrator. And so when you look at those two things, it begins to make more sense, like why people get stuck, even if they're like, this is awful. It's, it's, they've been programmed and I, that's, that's such a horrible word, but from a psychological standpoint, like they've, they've really been, um, abused into thinking that this is the only place that they can be safe.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I'm glad you brought up Stein because she also, um, A key part of that attachment problem, because, and I think this is where people kind of lose, some people maybe lose the perspective or the picture, the full picture, because we tend to talk about the abusive aspects of these groups and highlight those because we're trying to inform Mm -hmm. that that happens. It's real. It's. We went through it. Other people went through it. Uh, it, You will probably go through it if you join this group. We're trying to get that across, but we can't communicate the full experience of it because you have to understand that it's not all bad. Mm -hmm. There are times where it's good and there are times when it is extremely good because you wouldn't stay if it wasn't. And that's right. the and that's actually part of that bonding cycle is that mm-hmm. I that I learned that you we, we learn about this year is it was so fascinating because it's not just abuse, it's that it is, uh, it, there's a revolving door of abuse and help Aftercare. yeah exactly love right so there's yeah. love and there's hate there's love and there's hate and you're and and the and the the crazy bonding attachment that happens there is you're really not sure what you're going to get with this person, and you kind of hope it's going to be good, and you right. think it could be good. In fact, there are times where it was great, where it was amazing, well, you know?
1: And and from a brain chemical standpoint, um, they've done studies again in from, I think, in domestic— violence on the family level, but also on the individual level. Um, when you are going through the abusive process, your brain is flooded with cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And then on the other end of the cycle, which is like the loving bonding, you're flooded with oxytocin. And so that's creating this deeper bond. And some people do get addicted to that. Um, we wouldn't we wouldn't have an opioid crisis if people didn't get addicted to that oxytocin rush um and so for anybody that's interested in looking into this that the theory was i think first put out by lenore walker the cycle of violence Mm. and again it's specific to domestic violence interpersonal violence but it's it perfectly overlays onto the cult cycle of violence too
0: yeah exactly and it's it's really this is when we talk about you know the word manipulation right? Or control or coercive control. This is, this is the kind of patterning we're talking about. We're not talking about you go home every day or you go down to the cult center every day and they throw you in the basement and they beat you and you just keep coming back and reporting for your abuse. That's not the picture. The picture is an alternating abuse. You know, there's punishment and there's reward and there's punishment and there's reward. And, and it's, it's kind of amazing how long some people will continue to go into a strictly abusive environment and just keep going back to it. But it is even more fascinating how long you can extend that stay by interspersing that abuse with periodic moments of pleasure or benefit or, you know, help or or whatever that the person—that's not fake. It's not flattery. It's not—it's not nonsense. It's the person manifests substantially feels better. You know, you get that that oxytocin hit, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and and that's pleasure. That is—that is our experience of pleasure. And human beings will do just about anything, like any other thing any other living creature to feel good. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So that's what keeps you coming back. And I think if I was going to answer the question of why didn't you just walk away? It's because it's a mixed bag with this group and you have this endless hope mm-hmm. that the potential for this group can be realized even if it's not being realized right now. There, did you, you know. did
1: you ever like, were you super invested in the potential of the group? I'm curious, really
0: super invested. And I yeah. found I, it's taken me a number of years to realize that I was, that that was not a common thing necessarily. Not yeah. everybody bought into that. I, I very much believed that oh. we were saving the world and that all the That's sacrifice true. I was making was a martyrdom for that. And it wasn't the beautiful sadness of it. I hated it. It, I did not enjoy going through any of that crap. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was crap, but I put up with it because the mission was more important. And what worthwhile goal has ever been accomplished by anybody without a great deal of sacrifice?
1: Right. Right. It's so interesting to me because, um, I grew up with a lot of people that felt that way, both first and second gen. And for me, I always struggled to align with the mission because again, I, I didn't grow up in a, a, intense community, my family moved around a lot. And I know that we talked about telling my story at some point so that it's not just like little dribs and drabs, but you know, in the Unification Church, people tended to have these um, pockets of Moonies in like the Tarrytown, New York area and the Washington DC area, the San Francisco Bay area. And my family was always on sort of the outskirts of a Mooney community or like in a backwater. So I was super isolated from that camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of um, outside people. I wasn't really allowed to have relationships with them or anything, but that was an interesting counterpoint for me. And then seeing like the first gen and sometimes even second gen, what that did to me was making me feel like something was wrong with me because I didn't really believe in this organization. And so there was so much self-hatred that I brought to the game. And I I don't, I don't know what's easier or harder in terms of getting out. Um, But it, it wasn't necessarily that I had to deconstruct whether or not this group was actually saving the world and what, you know, was the mission worthwhile or not? Like my biggest point of deconstruction was, am I a horrible human being? Like, am I, I remember journaling when I was like 19 or 20 and on the cusp of leaving that I felt like a blind spot in God's love because I was just so not connected to the mission. Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, I was great at performing um, but I did it with such loathing without the, there's gotta be something good here. It was just like, what the actual F is happening? And you would think illogically that there, that would be enough to snap me out of it, to be like, I'm done. And I think that there were people who somehow circumvented the self-loathing and were just like, no, nope, this is shit. I'm out. But it took me a really, really long time. And I think part of that was my family culture.
0: I, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But yeah, it's, it's so interesting to me to hear other people when they come out the other side, uh, talk about whether or not they were really invested and, I feel like an asshole being like, well, I wasn't,
0: but the that's a good thing. <laughs>
1: it, uh, it, came with its, it came with its own baggage and damage right. though, yep. you know? Of
0: course it did. Of course it did. Well, and, and that's the thing is the recovery process is that's why we say it's so, it's so individual because I'm sitting here thinking about what you're saying and realizing that there should be... And there probably have been studies or, or, or categorizations come up with or things worked on with this. I, I haven't particularly seen it yet, and maybe I could find it in the literature. But some kind of a, of a well, what are the factors that keep people in a group. What are they? You know, is there there's loyalty to the group, there's loyalty to the mission, there's loyalty to the individual who represents the group, whether that's the authority figure or the person who got you in or your mom or whoever that is. There's the there's the ideals of it, there's the morality of it. There's there's a lot of different things that cause someone to want to be part of a group. Mm -hmm. And, and then over time, you could say, maybe there might even be stages to this there, you know, there are reasons people stay and continue and evolve into the group. And I think these could be categorized somehow. It might be kind of interesting to figure that out because I'm thinking, you know, here we have a person like you, such as yourself who raised in the group, but somehow found themselves, whether it was never, or at some point you realize this mission ain't my mission. This isn't my thing. What am I doing here? And you kind of get a little imposter syndrome.
2: Huge. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That wasn't my thing, though, at all, ever. I never, ever thought I wasn't a good Scientologist. And wow. in fact, it was, it was the Scientology principles as written that I believed in. And when they were being violated, when I was lying more often than I was telling the truth, for example, that created for me a moral crisis Mm -hmm. and I couldn't continue to be part of it simply because of the morality of it, not because there was some individual I hated or somebody I couldn't get along with, or I would, I just got too much abuse because I put up with a a tremendous amount of abuse and I was prepared to put up with a whole lot more, but the day that I realized our mission was not being accomplished because we were actually violating the very principles that we were espousing, that mm. hypocrisy was what spoke to me. So it's, yeah. so it really, the triggers can be, you know, the sort of like, oh, wake up moments can be caused by w- wildly different things. And yeah. uh, and I don't know that we totally appreciate the variety of that.
1: No. And and I think that there's, there's multiple layers to it for a lot of us too, because, you know, as you were sharing, it made me realize like, yeah, I, I walked away when I was 21 uh, and part of me was like, well, this is bullshit. And there was another very strong part of me that was like, I failed. I'm an epic failure and therefore I cannot, nor do I deserve to be, part of this group anymore and it took a really really long time for the this is bullshit to emerge as the forerunner in my emotional reality
2: yeah
0: yeah big time big time i wonder i'm curious in the groups you're in because i've commented about x cult member groups, social media groups and stuff, a few times, because I've been in, I've been involved in directly observed not only ex-Scientology groups, but ex-Mormon, ex-Jehovah's Witness, and ex-Christian um, cult groups, uh, specifically Gothard's group. So I've seen those ex-communities and, of course, have worked with ex-members of other communities. And it's interesting, the parallels are almost one for one. Between them, in terms of uh, how there's factions, and there's you know old school versus new school, and there's you know varying belief sets, and there's people who come out who still believe in the founder, but they think it you know that the organization's off the rails, or vice versa. I mean, there's so many different things. But I'm curious, uh, have you noticed or or taken any any um, looked at all at first gen versus second gen there?
1: So my research proposal, right as it stands, is lived experiences of first gen and second gen in the un- levers of the unification church. And I think that that answers to that would come out in the data. Um, I would need to do a really large, a quantitative study to get you accurate, statistically significant data on that, (laughs) but- um,
0: How dare you try to be accurate in answering my question.
1: Right, (laughs) anecdotally, I have seen differences um, on on an individual level. I've seen with SGAs, I see kind of people who don't wanna deal with it, Mm. who think that it's bullshit people who want to burn the motherfucker down, and then people who are, are kind of like in the process of leaving, who are not ready to let go of parts of the organization again, whether it's the founder or the theology. And I mean, I think that I probably fell into that category too at the end, where again, as somebody who like didn't really believe in it. I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe there's like good stuff here to salvage. I don't know. Like maybe moon is the Messiah and maybe I'm a failure, but I just got to get out of here. Like there's, I I think that it's very, very messy and muddy, especially early on. And it's, so I think that- the answer to that question changes the further away from the organization a person gets, the more critical Mm -hmm. thinking skills they've acquired, maybe the more therapy they've had, the more they've been able to look at their past experiences and analyze them. So there's a lot of factors there.
0: Yeah. And
1: and I have no easy answer to that question.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Well, I just wanted to get your observations on it because I, um, And of course, I completely appreciate your answer there. You're you're absolutely right that it would require more study to get real accurate answers on that. I think I have tended to observe on social media, which is really the only connection I've had with, say, independent Scientology, Mm -hmm. which is Scientology that happens outside the official church. People leave Mm. the church. They still engage in Scientology practices. They still have their e-meters, they still do auditing, or they do classwork even. And there are little mini organizations set up around the world for this. And there's I think it's I think the census is somewhere around maybe fifteen hundred people worldwide. If I was and I think I'm being generous there with in terms of active people who practice Scientology outside of the church and still call mm-hmm. themselves Scientologists that way, they, they, you know, independents. But it's been my observation that almost all of them are first gen. And yeah. I find that interesting. Now, it's just an observation. And again, it's only through social media channels. So it's, it's a subset of the total group. So I, I can't say 100% that's the case. But it's been interesting to me that I've observed the ones who are around and talking are mostly first gen.
1: I think I know of in in the main body of the unification church, they would consider there's there's two different things that are kind of happening in the Scientology thing as far as the way the unification church would look at it. There's either an offshoot, mm-hmm. which is like. Um, they're not associated, you know, they're doing their own thing and, and they're wrong, or there's the resting member. So somebody who hasn't been coming to church for a while, but might still believe might have a picture of moon in their yeah, house or something, might yeah, consider yeah. themselves a member in the, the second gen community. <laughs> I feel like it, it gets more complicated because that is your identity even if you're not like invested in the church, right? You're still like, oh, this is how I grew up. This is, this. these were all my friends and family. And I think that for people who grew up in one of those more densely populated communities, they might not believe, they may believe a little bit, but they're able to maintain relationships within the church. Um, Which I think is actually sort of a weird rarity in the unification church, because, Mm. you know, I'll say like you lose everything. And for some people you really do. And I was, I was one of those people where it was like, you know, people just blocked me from their lives. But um, I do know of a few people and and maybe they're not in the, the majority, but people who've been able to maintain ties with people who are still in the church as friendships and I don't know, like maybe they just have really healthy boundaries about like <laughs> what, what the friendship entails and what they'll talk about and what they won't. I, I really don't know. Um, but again, those, those people are very few and far between in my experience. So uh, it does tend to be more of the first gen that try to stay connected, but maybe are not like fully invested.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a phrase they use in the XJW world, they talk about PIMO, you know, physically and mm-hmm. mentally out. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that describes a, some of what you were talking about there as people who are, you know, going through the motions or saying the right words or still using the language in some fashion, but really not dedicated, you know, really not not interested in doing a whole lot with it. but as you mentioned, they, they they don't want to lose the community. They don't want to lose the social ties. And the, and, and that is a, that's that's not a small thing, by the way. We sort of uh-huh. toss that off sometimes. But if you think about out there, the people who are listening or watching this right now, I mean, think about your world. Think about what makes your world your world. It's, it's people, you know, for for a good chunk of that is people you know, people you're related to, people you work with, people you're friends with, people you socialize with. And, you know, if I suggest to you right now, well, if you have a really big problem with some aspect of that, why don't you just walk away? And that's kind of what that question sounds like to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know?
1: I, I also want to add to that uh, for some people, um, the the PIMOs, as you will, to steal a phrase from the, the XJW community, some of them are financially dependent on yeah. the group. So in the Unification Church, there are so many businesses. And I do know of, um, especially Second Gen, but a First Gen as well, who the only work experience that they've had as adults have been in a church organization. And if somebody knew that they were doubting, they would lose the support, not just from themselves, but sometimes for their spouse and their children too, because now we're talking about adults in, in their thirties, maybe forties. It was less dire for me. I got fired from a church business at 21 and then I was gone and I was able to lie to a newspaper and be like, yeah, I have a college degree. And they hired me <laughs> I was able to kind of like put my life together. But, um, for it's, it's harder if I was my age and I had been working for a church organization and I had a, a partner and children or something. Um, how do you say in your late thirties, early forties, like, yeah, I, I worked for this, this, and this, and people start to research and they're like, Wait, what? Yeah. You know? I mean, because also, too, like, in these church organizations, uh, you may not have to, like, have a resume. You may not have to do job interviews. There's a lot of stuff that I think in the, quote, real world we take for granted that cult kids do not learn. I was was addressing Christmas cards today, and I remember back when I was 19 working for a church organization – I was putting together the mailing labels for this church newsletter, and I did it wrong. I brought it to the post office. They're like, you can't do it this way. The, the computers cannot scan when you have the return address and the, the mailing address on the same line. I didn't know that. How many 19-year-olds don't know that? I don't know. But I didn't know how to do a lot of things. Right. So you know, there's there's stuff that again, like we just take so much for granted that um, people may move through their lives in these groups without having those skill sets. And um, so I think that that's a really important thing to think about when you think about the physically in, mentally out. Is that physically in can entail so much that. When you compile all those little pieces, it's terrifying,
0: yeah, exactly, exactly it's 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 um it, it takes some real introspection to break down all the elements of your life and the influencers and stuff. And I don't know that any of us can can totally do it for ourselves because of our own biases, right? We might not necessarily label certain things as as influencers, right or wrong good or bad, or whatever i um I'm curious because um oh, I just had a thought and I wanted to. Um, oh yeah. The beliefs, the beliefs, <laughs> another reason to stay right is, mm. um, <laughs> there's a, there's a power to, <laughs> to having the answers.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, even if the organization is screwed, even if, and believe me, I definitely got to a place while on and after the rpf after that whole prison kind of experience where i had real problems with the organization of scientology the church itself mm-hmm. i was very very like wait a minute this is there's something's wrong with this place mm-hmm. and that lasted years mm-hmm. i mean the last that was about the last 4 or 5 years of the experience was me sitting there telling myself there is something openly there is something wrong with this group this group is not Uh, doing what it's supposed to be doing or not doing it in the right way, but I stayed. Why? Because of the mission, right? Because of the fact that where else am I going to go? Not only saving the world, let's just skip saving the world for a second. Let's go to helping people. Let's go Mm -hmm. to helping people with what I believed was the only technology that could actually help people. Mm -hmm. And that's something I was learning from the cradle. I mean, we're talking young, like this was how it is. So Mm -hmm. I had no concept of how it could be different from that. It was that big of a truth to me that Mm -hmm. Scientology was the single thing that was going to change a person's life significantly for the better. Yeah. You know, money wasn't going to do it, food wasn't going to do it, the perfect job wasn't going to do it, you know, having a yacht and a mansion wasn't going to do it. There was no material things that were going to give you spiritual salvation and immortality. Only mm-hmm. Scientology could do that. So how could I possibly walk out of this group and go do what? Flip burgers? Go go sell stocks? Go, mm-hmm. go you know, go have a hobby? What? So, so there's that aspect of it also is, is that truth thing is powerful.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, a good analogy is that the, the truth that you have is this oasis in this desert, right? At least that's what you're taught to believe about it. And everything that you said could be applied to my experience being raised in the Unification Church. The divine principle, which was the theology that Reverend Moon supposedly came up with, was the ultimate truth that human history had been waiting for, you know, and God finally revealed to Reverend Moon um, and that, that nothing, there was just nothing that... There is no other way to have a relationship with God except through Reverend Moon and through the divine principle. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there was no way to happiness, you know, and we're not talking about hedonistic happiness either. We're talking about more the eudaimonia, you know, that all human relationships are going to be crap, you don't have divine principle there's going to be no meaning in your life if you don't have that as your framework um and if it's not centered on god and true parents which were moon and his wife so again it's you know the cult playbook that we talked about before i think that every single group has that same sacred science right to take it back to lifton um but yeah if if you're brought up to believe that it is heady like, okay, well, this sucks, but there's nothing else good out there. You know, so either it's my problem, or the way that my mother would would sometimes um, put it to me when I was struggling with this is she'd say, even in the Catholic Church, there's everything from the mafia to Mother Teresa. So the problem isn't God, the problem isn't moon, it's that you know, you're coming up against the mafia end of the organization. There's fallen nature in human beings mm-hmm. and none of us are perfect. And so as we're all trying to execute heaven on earth, there's just, there's going to be bad eggs in there or people who are struggling with their bullshit. Um, and so for, she'd always say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't doubt the truth because of human fallibility in trying to build the kingdom of heaven, basically.
0: Bingo! Exactly, and that's see. There's a retention technique in the Moonies, right? And in Scientology, the retention technique. I, I love doing compare and contrast, so let's go ahead and do it. Is um is it's all your overts. it's all your sins, right? the well, we only,
1: had that too, right?
0: Yeah, the, yeah, that the the sins, the 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 overt yeah. acts, your 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 moral yeah. transgressions. They're the only reason, according to L. Ron Hubbard, and I just analyzed a whole lecture on this. I mean, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant circular logic argument that in, that wraps Scientologists' heads into pretzels. Mm-hmm. Because if there is something bad you have observed, you know, you're you're watching it, you're seeing it. The the, the org, the, the church is empty. There's nobody here. You know, we're 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 being told that Scientology is bigger than ever, and every week I go down to the church and there's nobody there, and uh, you know, the services are not really giving me what they promised they're going to give me or blah, 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 blah. Every one of your complaints, every single critical thought you have stems only from your moral transgressions, your overt. Right. We
1: were talking about this on Twitter. Was it yesterday? <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so
1: the, the the Mooney correlation is, is that all of your negative thoughts come from Satan mm-hmm. and that the only reason that Satan and evil spirit world was able to invade is because because you developed a common base with Satan by disuniting with your central figure. So the authority person above you or God or, or moon or whatever. Um, and so you're being invaded by these spirits and they are literally clinging to your body and dragging you down. So now you have to go pay money and go to Korea and hit yourself or get hit by other people. Yeah. Look up on A N -S S U. It's totally mind boggling. Um, but you would literally like sit in this big hall in, in rows and sing the same song over and over again and hit yourself to get the evil spirits out. And then you'd hit your neighbor. And sometimes an old Korean lady would wander around and hit you pretty hard. And people had major injuries from this. But the only reason that you have cancer, the only reason that um, you know the, the church event failed was because... Uh, you had doubts and you invited Satan in. So it's the same thing. You know, you guys maybe didn't hit yourselves, but.
0: Well, no, you have to use an, at at the highest level. I'm I'm laughing because at the highest levels of Scientology, it's confidential information that your body is actually composed of spirits. Mm. The right, thetans? De- de- thetans, That's right. Uh, unconscious. They're called body thetans, B.T.s, okay. and mm-hmm. they cluster together because of traumatic episodes in the past. And you've got thousands and thousands of them, literally attached to your body, mm-hmm. and you have to use an e-meter and a special set of processes. And you spend thousands and thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. and and years of your time. Nobody does this in months. It's years of dedication to exorcise these spirits from you. So instead of going to Korea and getting beat on, you go into a room and talk to yourself with an (laughs) e-meter for years and you pay for the Mm -hmm. privilege of doing that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Same principle though. Yeah. We have, not only is it spirits attaching themselves to you, it it could be Hitler for all we know, but it's also your ancestors. So when you have Uh, a bad thought and you disunite with your central figure, your ancestors who are resentful that you are living in the only time in human history when the Messiah is on earth, except, you know, for when Jesus was here uh, and you are failing, they will come and attack you, which is, it, it doesn't seem very logical. Like why would they attack you? Why wouldn't they come whispering in your dreams? Like, Hey, moon's the real deal, but they attack you. And so you have to liberate your ancestors. And so that in and of itself for an American, you have to liberate, 240 generations or something like that um, enough so that like everybody is liberating each other's ancestors. Cause we're all related that far back, but it, it costs for an American about tw- $12,000 for a Korean. It costs less for a Japanese. It costs way more because moon hated the Japanese. And, uh, and then that's, again, that's not even the cost of like just the random spirits, you know?
0: Wow. That is completely new to me. I have never heard that one before. So that's that. Thank you for telling me about that. It's bonkers. It's wow. Yeah, that defies uh, every logical bone in my body. Which leads me to my next uh, th- thought that we might discuss for a moment or two, because this is something I I don't think I've really. I, I, you know, I've made videos about critical thinking. I've made PSAs about critical thinking. I've talked about critical thinking a lot. I call myself a critical thinker. But I think I've been lacking in quite for quite a while now in actually describing more thoroughly or defining more correctly what I'm talking about when I use the words critical thinking. And I wanted to consult with you on this because you've had a very similar experience to mine, and you're also doing education just like I am and you understand the vital importance of that educational part of this recovery process it's it's really important uh-huh. i can't stress it enough and it's really hard for people to do it's hard for people to learn some things it's hard to dive into big words and big documents and and try to parse this stuff out and it yeah. is it's 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 a dedication and a and a work But when I talk about critical thinking, one of the things that seems to, and and I I don't want to change the the phrase, I like the term critical thinking, but included in that, for me at least, is emotional intelligence. Mm, mm. It's understanding my own and other people's emotions and the fact that emotion is not something you can divorce from thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think we set up this sort of model in our heads a long time ago that there's a rational mind and our more primitive mind, or there's emotional part and there's, you know, a limbic system and there's a frontal lobes and these are clearly divided. And any neuroscientist is going to tell you as I've I've interviewed him on my show, that's bullshit. There is no such thing as a divide, you know, little sections in your brain. It's a, it's a whole organ that operates as an, as an, as a whole. And. And I, I, I call emotions, you know, thoughts that your whole body feels because you, you, you feel them in your toes. You know, it's like it, that that's – that's but it's happening in the same place. Mm-hmm. That's why – and I, I'm only on a tear about that because um, I've recently been challenged about this stance on critical thinking because I say that critical thinking is an antidote to, to getting into cults. Mm. It, it's a helpful thing to know about. It's not – hundred percent workable. I mean, anybody can be fooled anytime. If you can lie to a person, you can get them into a cult. It's pretty it's, it's actually about that simple. but but it helps, it helps you spot those lies. It helps you recognize that there are such things as manipulation and emotional, Manipulation is part of that in fact it 's the biggest part of that, and i don 't know how to think about critical thinking without thinking about that part of it. But let me ask you when you think about critical thinking or have or have talked about or 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 thought about that topic, how do you think about it
1: I think that for me, the, the most important thing to understand is the underlying emotions that we can be manipulated through. And I'm trying to decide which, which direction I want to go in in answering this. Mm. I'm thinking of, um, Cialdini's principles of influence where he Mm. talks about, um, what is it? It was six and now it's seven different principles by which we can be, influenced slash manipulated. And these are things that like we as human animals, it's almost a automatic reaction. He uses the, the phrase click were as like the, the stimulus happens and our brain just starts whirring along in a direction.
2: Yep.
1: Um, and so understanding those principles for me has been really helpful, uh, not always in the moment necessarily, because, mm-hmm. I'm an emotional creature, I'm a social creature, and I've been programmed along with all my other social creatures to react to many of these things, um, which is why influence works. But um, looking back, at least at times where I experienced manipulation, it's helpful for me to see, oh, these were the things that were at play. Another layer to it is um and i think this is really important for anybody who's survived trauma especially developmental trauma and sgas are a perfect example is learning to feel our feelings as they're happening um that's like step 1 but then step 2 is almost like learning to not necessarily react to them and that sounds kind of um like i'm telling you to be a sociopath or something and i'm not but One of the most important things for me in in my healing process was to be able to observe an emotion, and to understand that this is coming up for me. Maybe not necessarily because of the external criteria, but it's pinging something old in me, and then all of these all of these suppressed emotions because we weren't allowed to have emotions in the cult. They're coming up. So like feeling and then observing the feelings um, and then understanding what they meant and, or what they mean, um, being able to shorten the time in processing, I'm feeling this emotion and, um, and here's what it means. That's really, really important. And then I feel like you can start to layer on other more like the, the more critical thinking, but it's, it's almost like building the pyramid, if you will, of like, okay, well, here's like the base level for me, this is what came on top of it. Um, and, and so I just, I, I I mean, maybe people can think critically without being in touch with their emotional processes. Um, I I feel like I've met a lot of them when I worked at IBM, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of the engineers were kind of like those sorts of guys, and that's fine. Um, but I, I think for those of us who've been exposed to extremely manipulative circumstances or extremely manipulative people, these are like various tools in the toolbox that kind of go together in very important ways that I think we are handicapped in our healing and in our growth. If we're only using one and not the others.
0: There you go. Well, I, I, I agree completely with that sentiment. And that's, and I think that really is, is my underlying point. There is, if you if you believe that or you think that what I've been saying all these years is that critical thinking is just about learning your logical fallacies, learning how rhetoric and debate works, learning how to think through a an, you know a reasoned argument of you know premise, argument, 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 evidence, you know, et cetera. That's that is all legitimately part of this package, but there is mm-hmm. this whole other part, and yes. and I, and I I I I know I'm straining the term emotional intelligence because it is also commonly misunderstood, but I'm gonna just kind of shove them together and go that's critical thinking for me because I want I really wanted to get this across in a very really loud way that 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 I mm. am including the emotional intelligence part of this because I have. It, come to a place in my study and learning at least where through, you know, emotion and neuroscience and psychology and and sociology that you see this package of a human being and you realize it's impossible for any human being anywhere in the world to have objective thinking. (laughs) You know, or the, it's, a, it's a construct. It's a, it's a model. It's a, it, we can sort of set up a little section in our brain and go, well, I'm going to be objective right now. But you don't get to just deny your background, your culture, your language, your education, your, your location in the world. All of those things affect how you view stuff
1: yeah yeah i i think problematically um a lot of academia is siloed and so there's not a lot of those connections being made for the public or for students and you know this is why there's sort of that argument against the ivory tower it's not one tower it's a lot of towers that aren't talking to each other um (laughs) and so it is really easy to learn about and think about critical thinking in that siloed way but you're right it's again, I don't know how somebody does a critical analysis of a situation without having any kind of emotion around it, without, um, being influenced in some way. Like you and I could read a paper and do a critical analysis on it. And it's so dry that maybe we're not having any emotions other than like, I'm really bored and I want to go do something else. (laughs) Um, but I I try to do critical analysis when I'm reading news articles, Mm -hmm. especially when I'm reading op-eds because I found early on leaving the group and certainly when I was in the group, I was taught to just digest whatever anybody told me. You weren't allowed to deviate from that line of thinking, right? So if I'd read an op-ed in the New York Times, I'd be like, well, they must be right. But now I look at it and I'll be like, in my mind circling this sentence and I'll be like, well, this is hyperbolic or there's, there's no real evidence here. Or, you know, I completely disagree with this, or this point has actually been disproved, you know? So like sort of fact-checking in my mind as I go. Um, but again, uh, I'm still having emotions as I'm doing that. I cannot divorce my emotions, my background, et cetera, from it. Like when somebody says something that I'm like, I have read evidence clearly contrary to this i get angry yeah. you know and then i'm like <laughs> fuck you for getting published in the new york times and spreading your bullshit you know so yes. it's uh yeah i i I don't see how as human beings you can separate those various parts of
0: yourself i don't either and it's become crystal clear to me uh in with social media and this is, and this is where you know the transparency and the and the 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 view, I guess you could say, of, of, of what goes the, you know, the emotional life and intellectual life of a lot of people through their comments and stuff. And you just, over time, you start seeing this and you start seeing patterns and, and various things that you observe. And one of those, of course, is that our emotions greatly, greatly, greatly influence how we perceive information mm-hmm. or dare I say, whether we even perceive it at all.
2: Yeah.
1: My mother used to tell me, (laughs) so if we ever talk about my, my story in depth, my mother is a really interesting figure because she was the thing that kept me in the cult the longest. And she was also the thing that helped me learn to leave. And she, I I think I said, last time we talked, she described herself to the end when she passed away as a fundamentalist Mooney. But what she would tell me is, be careful what you believe because it'll control your life. Studies have been done to show that people will literally shut out information that disagrees with a closely held worldview. And I was like, thanks, ma. (laughs) So what you're telling me is, (laughs) um, you know, and, and she was using that as cult propaganda, but I took that as I've got to be really careful about the belief systems that i am being inundated with on a daily basis because i could be shutting out really important information for myself
0: exactly exactly where this has kind of come for me is um the idea i that um you know people i flip the script on the stupid question okay um you, you know you'd have to be stupid to join a cult and i say mm-hmm. or you know what kind of, how stupid do you have to be to join a cult and i say no no it's you, it's the, the, the what, what actually happens is you keep yourself stupid to yeah. stay in a cult. In other words, you have to deny the evidence of your senses, your perceptions, and the intake of information. You have to filter. And we all do. This is, it, it, you know, it's cultists are no different with this. It's just learning about cultists is what taught me this, is that we right. all filter what we're willing to accept what we're willing to hear you know you uh, gave a perfect example there god these like, ah, new york times why did they post this bullshit you know it's like it's like we we reject out of hand stuff that we disagree with but now whether we have evidence or not we do mm-hmm. that now if we have evidence we're more justified in doing that but but it doesn't change the fact that we do it whether we have evidence or not you know, right. it just it just takes whether you agree or disagree. You know, ah, screw this guy, unfollow block, you know, all this stuff I still we do. do that.
1: Somebody <laughs> that I used to work with posted something that I felt was like incredibly just disgusting and detrimental. And I was like, you know what? Unfollow. Yep.
2: Yep. I don't exactly. need I
1: don't need to engage. But I, I recognized as I did that, like that's the exact thing that we're talking about here. Is I'm choosing to filter out this information because you know, and here are my reasons, but at the same time, um, I also feel like given what we're going through right now, we might have to like choose what we take in and and what we filter out. And that for me was like a mental health choice, you know,
0: absolutely, Um, absolutely. Well, let me, let me contribute to that by, by saying uh, there, uh, I, I could see how, some. uh, uh, let me say this. I don't mean not do that. Don't 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 stop doing that. That's a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with filtering information. It's we all have to do it. If anything, it's a primary function of the brain. But mm-hmm. I'm just pointing out that we're awful quick to do it sometimes based on mm-hmm. our gut, based on what we think is right rather than what actually is right. Mhm. And when we do that in those contexts, I I will offer up maybe we could think twice about that from time to time, you know, just because you disagree with a thing doesn't mean it's automatically wrong, but that's the way we're tuned to think. And so we do that. Yeah. And it, and it helps feed, you know, it's, a, it's something the cult leaders take advantage of, but it's something the propagandists take advantage of. And, you know, when I read news now, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, don't, nope, don't want to see less like this, you know, on my news feed. But what I'm doing is filtering out propaganda mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I look at so many news stories now and I, and my first question when I open up a news story now is what's the basic point this author is trying to get across to me? Mm-hmm. In any written yeah. work, there's a basic point or series of points being made, no matter what the piece is—opinion, mm-hmm. fact, whatever.
1: It's it's really interesting because um, I was listening to—I think it was uh, one of the episodes of A Little Bit Culty where Sarah mm-hmm. Edmondson was talking about how they were trained to do that in Nixium, but the mm-hmm. way that they were trained to do that was to basically critically analyze a piece of writing to come to the conclusions that Keith Raniere had already posited. And so I think that we do have to be careful in that regard, too, because Mm -hmm. uh, we can very easily just take something apart and be like, yeah, and this is why I still believe what I do, when again, we're still filtering out very important information. Um, And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I struggle with in terms of, like where we're at today, is that it's it's not that one side is completely stupid, right? right. I think that there are legitimate concerns on the right, for example, about, mm-hmm. okay, so are there oversteps in terms of executive orders being made by the government right now? And where does that lead us? Sure. But at the same time, like, I get mad when I go to the grocery store and people aren't masking. I'm right. like, fuck all of you. (laughs) You know, it's, it's like, I I think that we have to be really careful because um, again, it's, it's not that people are stupid, but it is that they may hold a specific belief and therefore they're collecting people and other information around a belief that may not be true um, or that may be problematic or whatever. And, and I see it on across the spectrum. I don't want to say both sides, because again, we get very black and white about it, but across the spectrum of yeah. left and right, we're all guilty of it. Um, and it, it freaks me out sometimes because it, it does seem like we're very given to what Lifton would call totalist thinking. And that is seeing the world in black and white. And that's not healthy for anybody because it it's how we got here. And it's, it's not going to get better from here. If we continue. You know?
0: Exactly. And it's not even a matter of, of this is a, just a phenomenon of the extreme ends of spectrums, because you can have, theoretically at least, a radical moderate, a radical mm. centrist. You, know, you could have somebody who absolutely is so dedicated to a whataboutism and a centralized sort of focus that they filter out everything that's not that. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. again. What it, we're, we're really talking about is is confirmation bias, right? right. That that exactly. idea that that you've got a bias, you've got a belief, you've got an idea, and everything has to confirm to that or conform to that. And if it doesn't, you reject it or push it away. And my solution to that, which has been for me at least, has sort of has sort of overcome that uh, to to a great degree. Has been um, at least on issues I care about enough to go looking. Is um, the, the, the principle from John Stuart Mill, from a, a work he did called On Liberty, where he talks about freedom of speech, and he talks about how you have freedom of speech, and he talks about how if you're really going to try to engage and think critically with another side, with an opposing side, you actually should put yourself in a position or get yourself educated enough that you can state their position back to them in such a way that they will completely agree that you hundred percent get what they're saying, like you explain That's, it back to them so better than they can explain it.
1: So you're talking about like reflective listening, right? exactly. That's what we're exactly also right. talking about is empathy too. Yeah. You know, because we're not talking about just uh, taking the information that somebody's given you and vomiting it back, but. you you know, processing it. And so what I think I hear you saying is, and then using your own words and, uh, speaking to it in a way that is maybe relevant to you. and, And like, and I can see how X, Y, and Z that's really hard. Most of us aren't good at empathy,
0: right? Well, I believe personally, my own little take on this is that this is a bridge to empathy,
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I believe this is a way to create empathy in people who might not have it in a in a specific context in a specific situation, and I'll give you an example. Is I used and I, I am I'm not used to be I still am very much pro-choice when it comes to abortion. Oh my God, I'm going to bring that up. So uh, here's a contentious topic, and and mm-hmm. and views on this can be heated. Most views from most people are. I really just don't want to talk about it anymore. (laughs) I I wish people could just, you know, most people fall poll-wise on the side of it should be a woman's choice. And yeah, I really wish it didn't exist. I really wish that didn't happen, but it does have to happen. And I I don't really think regulators should be the ones telling women what to do about that. That is the majority view in the United States, according to recent polling. But Mm -hmm. I thought... Well, why are these people so adamant against abortion? What is up with this? I really couldn't get it. And this is a couple of years ago. Dive in, start reading their blogs, their sites, their literature, right? Really dive into it to realize that there is a contingent of people who truly believe that it is murder, Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. right? In the same way that, you know, uh, people on, you know, my end of the spectrum might be against the death penalty, it's murder, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, so are they against abortion for the exact same moral reasons. Now, that's not everybody, and I, I, I'm right. not I'm not putting all the you know pro life camp in one bucket. I'm pointing out that that is a sincerely held belief that I thought was a was a was a PR prop, was a was a fake mm-hmm. view, was you know that's not really what they think. What they really want to do is just control everybody's bodies. And I and I had to engage with these people a bit. To get, no, that's, that's a passionate, central, deeply held belief that this is murder. And if I believed it was murder, I would fight against it too. Yeah. And so that created that empathy bridge, right?
1: Right. It's, um, (laughs) I, I've always considered myself pro-choice too so yeah it's it's a really nuanced thing i get very angry when i read about what's going on in texas and what's going on you know with the supreme court in general and i think that there are really really important um dissenting arguments on the supreme court about how rolling back rv wade uh could roll back a lot of other things that we consider to be civil liberties right yeah there's there's a lot of precedence that's wrapped up in it and so i i do subscribe to that and yet i again i also totally understand where people are coming from when they do believe that something is you know the fetus is your great growing life and and maybe that comes from old residual religious beliefs that i haven't completely deconstructed from I'm, I'm willing to look at that too you know
2: yeah
1: um in the unification church i was taught that the spirit did not come into the child's body until they took like their third breath or something mm. but moon was also like Abortion is wrong unless um, the child is not going to be able to fulfill the purpose of creation. And in Moon's mind, the purpose of creation was to be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. So basically... Uh, it was a very ableist kind of ideology. If you're going to have a child with down syndrome or with any kind of like major chromosomal difficulties that would kind of fall under the, they will not be able to fulfill the purpose of creation probably Mm. so you could abort them. So it's like a highly problematic worldview in that regard. Um, I don't know. This wow. this could get into like a lot of we could get into Oh this. yeah, no, no. And and
0: I was really only trying to bring it up as a as a as an example of a deeply yes. held belief. And I and Yeah, I get it. It's contentious. We've probably already pissed some people off. Whatever. I I get it. I it's not the point of this, right? The point mm-hmm. of this was to talk about bridging the the difference between deeply held beliefs that people can hold can be bridged and empathy can be created by simply really engaging with the other person and trying to understand that they have a point of view. And when you get where they're coming from, you get, you get two benefits from that. One, you get the benefit of learning something new that you might not have already known. And two, you get the benefit of stripping away from you your assumptions about why Mm -hmm. this person feels the way they do, because they'll tell you why they feel the way they do. And you can stop assuming that you know why they feel the way they do. And I think those two things are both really, really important and they require communication in order to make that happen. And I, I, and that's the formula I am sort of, oh God, I can't believe I just used that word. I probably shouldn't have it's, it, it's a callback to Scientology crap, but I just, I, you know, th- th- sometimes the language is just the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I believe that that is the way in which we might be able to create a little more empathy in our society. So I'm suggesting people do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to tack on because again, abortion is such a, a contentious issue that we, I feel like in our society, we are um, programmed to totalist thinking, especially mm-hmm. in areas of politics, religion, etc., yeah. and so um, it's we are often offered only black or white, only one end of the spectrum or the other. Yeah. And so it is really, really uncomfortable to move into this more empathetic area because what you're talking about is holding two conflicting ideas at the same time and saying <laughs> that they are both true. Yep. Right. Yep. That's, that's the core Hard. of cognitive dissonance and most people cannot handle it, right? It's a huge struggle. We talked about, I think we talked about last time, one of the areas that I struggle with is my parents were people who really meant well, who were duped into a cult, who also became horrible abusers, who deserve empathy, who were victims themselves, who became horrible abusers. And, um, it's, it's, I think it's almost impossible to sit very comfortably in the middle of that. We sort of pendulum swing back and forth. And so I would never tell somebody like, you have to find the Zen in the cognitive dissonance. Um, <laughs> our world, our world is set up for that pendulum swing right yeah. now. Yeah. So, um, it's not an easy thing that you're asking for people to do. It's I, something I that right. takes a lot of effort.
0: I, I think you're absolutely right and uh, and I it certainly wouldn't be the first time that I have uh, made that mistake um, it is hard there's no there's no question about it um, all I can do is try to help Yeah. I mean, I think that. And and again, it's all context specific because I'm not recommending that you find common cause with racists or neo-Nazis. You know what I mean? It's like, let's not be stupid about what I'm saying either. You know, there are lines in the sand that every one of us absolutely needs to draw for our own sanity and mental health and morality. Right. And for these things to line up. So so I'm not at all suggesting that you switch sides I'm suggesting that you learn enough about the other side that you can understand where they're coming from so you don't make dumbass assumptions like, well, they all just want to kill me. Not really, you know, and and if you assume that kind of evil on the part of other people, which we are prone to do, and as you say, it's the perfectly natural, easy way to think, so most people do it that way so yeah. i so this also involves choosing your battles cuz you have to take the time and it involves some study and it involves talking to people and not arguing with them all the time and it involves all kinds of stuff and and you're right it, you know we're not we're not all capable of being able to do this on all topics but at least on the stuff that's like really super important to us at least we can invest a little bit of our time in that direction and and maybe it'll help and,
1: a- yeah, and, you know, and actually yeah. arguing with people usually is, is counterproductive anyway, right? Exactly. You know, exactly. our our professors, um, Rod and Linda, Dubrow, uh,
0: Marshall. Marshall, am yes. I
1: blanking?
0: <laughs> totally like- I, I do it all the time. <laughs> oh
1: my God, I feel awful. I hope <laughs> they don't listen to this. Um, they, they were recently quoted um, in an article and I'd have to find it if you wanted it for the show notes, but they talk about how- You know, argument is actually counterproductive to getting a friend or a family member out of the cult. And the best thing for you to do is to learn about their beliefs and to ask questions because sometimes it's through um, that reflective listening and that empathy that the other person is able to be like, wow, my reality doesn't match the value system that I was brought up with or that I have been indoctrinated into. And again, I'm not saying that that's going to work for a neo-Nazi because I'm not saying like get really interested in neo-Nazism and ask a bunch of questions, but I don't know, maybe it would work to, to wake somebody up. I don't know. Um,
0: Well, that does tend to be actually an intervention strategy. Hmm. It's
1: basically what exit counseling is based on.
0: Exactly. And so maybe, you know, this is me pulling from that reservoir of knowledge and saying Maybe this applies to more than just cult interventions, Mm -hmm. but I'll tell you straight up, you are never going to get somebody out of a cult by arguing at them. You Mm -hmm. know, we've got, you know, this has certainly been uh, well covered territory on my channel before, but let's, let's bring this up again, because this is really, really important. You only get people out of these situations by really listening to them like Mm -hmm. you just described. And asking questions and drawing out their where they're coming from, because you don't just have to understand the cult. You know, I, I I would never go read Dianetics in order to help somebody out of a out of a out of Scientology, but I would definitely want to know from them what they think Dianetics says. Interesting, right? Tell me your understanding of it, because it's probably going to be a little different than what Hubbard had to write, especially given how confusing. He wrote, you know, but by getting that view from them, it then opens the door for you to then ask the next question and the next Mm -hmm. question or bring up the next point in a, in an accepting open way where they're going to be willing to accept that information from you because Mm -hmm. you will never, ever, ever change somebody's mind by pissing them off and making them mad and defensive and, and get their hackles up. It just doesn't work.
1: Right. So I, I have I'm... several friends in, in multi-level marketing businesses, mm-hmm. and they're taught to cut off people that are not supportive. Um, and so one of the things that I've tried to do while not maybe investing monetarily is being an open channel mm-hmm. and asking questions. And a lot of the questions that I've been asking lately are like, you know, how are you doing in your business? How, how is your upline treating you? Um, How is your investment of time and money bringing you a return,
2: you you know,
1: and getting honest answers to that has been really interesting. And, and that's where I've been able to be the most supportive to the point where I said to a friend last night, you know, you've worked really, really hard at this business and We're in an unprecedented pandemic, and if it's not working out, there's no shame in walking away. You know, you gave it your all because there is a lot of shame in walking away from these situations. But being able to say to somebody, this doesn't sound like it's set up for you to succeed right now. You know, even though these ideals that you're really invested in sound great, it doesn't sound like they're actually manifesting for you. Bingo this isn't your fault, you know, and, and I love you and support you there if, if that's where you need to be, but also very much on the other side, you know, and don't despair. There's a lot of other stuff that you could do, you know? So I, I try to, to keep that kind of model when I think about, um, other people that get into more, what are coercive groups? It's, it's harder especially when it's more triggering for me personally, like a, a political
2: yes. <laughs> kind <of> thing. <laughs> Yes. thing.
1: Um, but yeah, yes. yeah I, I do think that um, that's why when you talk about these questions of, you know, how could you be so stupid to get into something? Why didn't you just leave? Um, those are counterproductive questions and they're counterproductive attitudes because they keep people in.
0: Bingo, you know? there we go. That's exactly what it, I'm so glad you circled back to that because that's exactly where I wanted to take this. Is it is counterproductive? Mm-hmm. It's it's actually harmful to people to be saying shit like that to them. And I don't mean like harmful like your violence. You know, words are not violence. I don't. I, I just, again, it's not what I mean. I just mean you're you're not helping the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're you kind of retard forward movement when you do that because. It is encouragement. It is approval that, is pe- that people seek. It's, people don't want to be shamed. Mm-mm. They don't want to be wrong. They don't want to feel like they've made wrong choices. And when you mm-hmm. pound into them, you're in a cult. An MLM is a, just another cult. You're just an idiot. How could you be so stupid? Nobody, you know, everybody knows. You're not helping the situation. You know no. and and no. i have uh had to learn that myself over and over and over again of course um you know these soap boxes i get on our our soap boxes of learned experience from making every mistake i could make doing this over and over and over again so so i think all we're really encouraging people to do or trying to encourage people to do is you know show a little kindness show a little uh compassion for people they you know everybody's kind of winging it everybody's kind of got their struggles. And that includes awful people, or people that you think are awful. <laughs> you know, sometimes awful people are awful. Okay, don't get me wrong. I, I would not suggest, you know, trying to empathize with Elron Hubbard. You know what I mean? I mean, there are limits to this, right? Everybody's got boundaries. We should have healthy boundaries, but you know, mm-hmm. what we can we can let our guard down a little bit, open ourselves up to a little bit of change of heart and change of mind. Don't you think? <laughs>
1: Yes. And also I think, you know, whenever I hear stuff like this, I always revert back to the SGA experience. Mm-hmm. And um I know that for those of us that were um brought up again in, in totalist environments where you know somebody else's influence was paramount, that's really, really hard and that's scary to do. God. Um and so it feels like, and and maybe other people can relate to this too. It feels like it's easier to protect ourselves by being like, no, you're wrong. Get out of my head. Um, and, and so I understand yeah. if, and when people aren't ready to do that, you know,
2: yeah.
1: um, it does make it harder when none of us are ready to engage in that kind of empathetic experience. Um, but it's, it's something that, uh, a lot of us, I think, when we've been brought up by um, narcissistic parents or we've had really bad experiences in intimate relationships where we've been brought up in a cult, um, when our reality has been denied, it's very, very easy to substitute somebody else's. So again, if, if you're like, Jen, Chris, can't do it. I get it. I do. It's a, it's a big ask. And yet I think that moving to a point where we have enough strength in our own beliefs, of our reality and yet can still empathize with another person's situation it's a beautiful place to get to it's a nice goal
0: fair enough fair enough and i i will certainly agree with that it is a nice goal if you can attain it great if you can only move towards it great if um if it's not on your radar at all well then i just threw out a suggestion and something for you to think about food for thought mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know we we are in trying times And, uh, and I'm, I am doing my level best to try to take the experiences and lessons of life that I have learned and pass them on as best I can, or, or try to encourage people to go get their own lessons, go make your own experiences with this is actually way better than listening to me. So, so actually if I could just encourage that much, you know, I would be, uh, I will take it as a huge success. So I guess that's where i'm kind of coming from on this i I, you're absolutely right and i'm and i'm glad you brought up that it is difficult for people because i tend to forget that sometimes i definitely do um uh, yeah so thanks for that and that all being said uh i think that we um i i think i will dare to suggest or put out for our so let our listeners know as well that um The next time that Jen and I get together, I think we've agreed that we're going to actually do her story so that we kind of get that, you know, knocked out of the park. We don't have to talk about it. But also, I have about a million questions. And so far, you have actually said some things about your experience growing up in the Moonies and certain aspects of the belief set that I had no idea about. And I actually thought before talking to you that I had a pretty good picture of it from my experience with Steve Hassan alone so you have mm. uh, so you have opened up the door for me for all kinds of questions for you on that experience so I really look forward to talking to you again about that
1: yeah I mean to Steve Hassan was in the group in the I think the early 70s I think he was in for maybe two and a half years something like that and uh, one of the ways that cults work is that they're constantly reinventing themselves so I, have been out maybe over 15 years. I don't even have like an accurate perspective on what the lived experience of a current member is right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is in no way to say, you know, Steve Hassan's experience wasn't relevant because it was to his time period. Mine was to my specific experience. And one of the things that I want to study is again, the differences in the lived experiences and the similarities. There's no homogenous experience Um, and so that's why having conversations with survivors can be so fascinating because you get that multifaceted view so
0: big time big time and it's 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 also interesting to see which parts or pieces can be emphasized in different experiences Mm -hmm. you know and um anyway all of that so absolutely well that all being said we're going to wrap up here today Mm -hmm. Jen, I want to thank you again for taking the time to, um, be part of my little world here and help my audience understand more of your experience and, um, you know, and help me explain the stuff (laughs) because it's hard, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Um, it? It is, but I love doing it. I'm happy to do it. I learn something new every single time. And, um, for me, learning education has been the most healing part of, of my journey. So it's, always wonderful to
0: talk to people like you. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jen. All right, guys. Uh, Of course, I have to wrap up the show with a little uh, standard outro here, of course, because I have to tell you or ask you that if you are enjoying the show, if this is something that you find informative, educational, entertaining, Uh, hopefully all three of those in one fashion or another, uh, that you will consider supporting the channel because uh, this is a fan-funded effort. And uh, the ability of me to do my work depends utterly on you guys and your support. So thank you very much for the support that you have been giving me. And I hope everybody is having uh, a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and all that sort of thing. Uh, So see you guys next week. Bye-bye.